I keep wanting to complain that it's humid, but the inner, the southern army just slaps myself. Um, so, but it is more humid than normal for us here. Um, we are in the second week of a, a series looking at Jesus. Terry got us started last week. Um, and it was an interesting sermon. He got up and introduced Jesus, um, which for a church largely made up of Christians, that can be strange, having somebody you know introduced to you again. Um, like I remember sometimes when like I'd go to an awards function for my father and they get up and they start talking about this person. I'm like, slightly different than the way I know him. Um, and I think that we can have that effect when we hear somebody introduced, that it can have a wonderful effect sometimes of shedding a light or a, a vantage point to a person that we don't necessarily immediately grasp because of our history or where we come from or what we've done. So I, there was something about what Terry said that was wonderful in that way. Um, but there's also a challenging sense where I, I've occasionally had people introduced to me that I know better than the person who's introducing them to me. Um, I don't think anybody's ever introduced Becca to me. Um, but if that happened, I probably would chuckle and let them go along. But then if at some point they started telling me things about Becca that I didn't know, um, it could very much just point to a problem. It could speak of a way in which I'd grown complacent and I had assumed on the proximity and the rituals of our lives holding us together, but that I'd let something grow there. Um, and that's what we're trying to address in this series is both of those aspects. We want to over the next 12, 13 weeks, present Jesus, somebody we, most of us all know, but to present him in a way that holds him up and allows us to see and delight in different facets of who he is that we might not have seen, um, but also that reminds us of places where our hearts have just grown numb. Um, he can seem really marvelous up front, and then you just start to... It just becomes, you're used to it. It's how he is. And you don't recognize how striking that is. So we're hoping over the next weeks to hold Jesus up that we might see him in that way. Uh, we're not doing it in a chronological sense. Uh, we had discussed going through one of the Gospels, but we actually decided to move in a more topical pattern, um, which means... Um, this week's the Trinity. Uh, we're looking at the pre-existing second person of the Godhead, um, which, as Terry said last week, I drew the short straw to talk on that. Um, apparently, it was so short, he decided not to come this week. Um, he is actually, he spoke at Anthem Church up north, and uh, he was ministering to their elders, and it went so well, it just dragged on to the afternoon. He's just driving home right now. Um, that's why he's not here. It's not to avoid heresy. Um, but the Trinity can be a challenging thing. I mean, some of us get excited when we hear Trinity is going to be talked about. Um, um, <laughs> other people's eyes glaze over at the sound of a word that long um, that seems so far removed. But I want to make just three assertions about the Trinity um, over the course of this. The first one is that it is central to our faith. The doctrine of the Trinity, um, this idea of a triune God, is something central to Christianity. Um, the second one is that it's actually simple, um, in a way. But it is simple. Um, and the third is that it's practical. So it is central, it's simple, and it's practical. Um, so first, the centrality of the Trinity. Um, and actually, just let me pause here. Um, 
I don't normally do book recommendations, but I love this book if anybody's talking about it. It is Delighting in the Trinity. It's an introduction to the Christian faith is the title, but it really is an introduction to the Trinity. It is, and I know that again, some of you are like, Ugh. it is extremely readable. It is oddly funny, actually. He has a good British sense of humor, nice and understated, but he actually makes jokes that land. Um, it has pictures. Um, and it is a... It is designed to be a very engaging, entry-level view into this. So if this is interesting, please pick this book up. It's absolutely fantastic. It's, oh, thank you. It's Michael Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S, and it's Delighting in the Trinity, and it's, it is a tremendous book. Um, so that said, that's the sales hour here. Um, as I said, we have a Trinitarian faith. We... Um, we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the, this idea of the Trinity, can somebody toss me one of my waters um, since I'm just, you know, dry and get my mouth? Um, I got it. Whoa, I don't need to. Um, the Trinity was one of the major battlegrounds of the early church as far as doctrine and uh, ruling out what heresy was and proper doctrine, and a lot of the councils were to address this. Um, one of them, the early creeds, the Athanasian Creed, um, which dates to 4th, 5th century, states, after it says that we must believe the holy Catholic faith, it states that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, never blending their purses, persons nor dividing their essences. That's what it opens up with when it starts describing this Christian faith, um, which can kind of, to us, seem like it's an overstatement. It feels in some ways like it moves the target from what it should be. Um, it feels like it can be a distraction from just the simplicity of a faith in Jesus, this nice, easy Jesus. Like We, we think of a passage like... Um, the one I forgot to give Dan, First uh, Corinthians uh, 15, which I also forgot to page, apologies, where this is Paul talking, and he's speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And now he's going to go on to describe this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to describe the people who Jesus appeared to. So he lays out as of first importance that Jesus died and was resurrected. And that is absolutely of first importance. We are... Christians, and we are saved because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we are not saved by the Trinity in the sense that what happens when we get to heaven is there's like at the gates, this is terrible theology, but just to give you a mental picture, there's a t written test on the Trinity, and if you pass it, you get in. Uh, if not, you should have studied harder and really dug into the deep theological riches of this world. Um, no, we are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but it's the death and resurrection of Jesus 
It's not just simply a death and a resurrection. They are not just bare verbs by which we're saved. They are a death of a certain person and the resurrection of that same person. And what the Trinity is getting at is who that person is. Because the truth is, and I say it's a distinction of our faith, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus died for our sins. And Mormons believe that he was resurrected. But we would hold that they adhere to a different faith because they don't believe Jesus is the same person we believe him to be. They believe he was something, actually I can't speak fully of Mormons, but Jehovah's Witnesses believe he was somebody who was created. So it's a distinction that Trinity is trying to get as who is this person who died for our sins? Who is this person who was resurrected? Who was the Jesus who did that stuff? So when I say this Trinity is central to our faith, it's because it is about the identity of God. It's not just some random doctrine that people really got spun up about 1,700 years ago, and because they stuck in the early creeds, we're stuck with it now, and we have to pretend like it's important. It really is something central, because it is talking about who our God is and who Jesus is. We have no hope of knowing Jesus fully unless we know him as the Son. And if we know him as the Son, that implies there's a Father. And as we look into that relationship, we discover, and the way we are drawn into that relationship, we discover this person called the Holy Spirit. So simply coming to Jesus as the Son basically starts to drag us down the road to recognizing the truth of the Trinity. And it's good to make a distinction here between the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the thing I'm mostly discussing, the way we believe and what we think about the Trinity, the thing that we need to embrace and understand, and the simple reality of the Trinity as it's just in God. It's like me talking about a description of Becca versus simply Becca the person. But what the doctrine of the Trinity is doing is trying to give us an understanding of who the person of God is. It is the work of theologians throughout the century interacting with the text of the Bible and through prayer and telling us how this all relates to tell us who God is. So that's the first point is it is extremely central to who we are because it speaks of who our God is. But that can then feel very challenging because the Trinity is the sort of thing that people can get wound up in the complexities of it. I mean, it's like, I mean, what is the, the, the creed again? This is just the language we speak on a normal, everyday basis, that we worship one God and Trinity, and Trinity and unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essences. It goes on for like another 45 lines speaking just like that. It is complex talk using very specific words in very central ways, and it can feel like something that becomes extremely complex. So we have the challenge of something that is central because it's telling us who our God is, but then we're looking at it and going, I don't want a faith that I need a doctorate to understand. We want a faith that doesn't sound like it's something that dropped from an ivory tower, that it comes from a place of arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. We want a faith that can be understood by children and grandmothers, and that's what we're looking for. And the Trinity can feel like it pushes against that. But that's why, again, the second point I'm trying to make is the Trinity actually is simple. My daughter 
understands the Trinity. And this is not because I have hammered the Trinity into her on a nightly basis. Um, I haven't. Um, she understands it because we read through her storybook Bible. And she hears God talking to people on these pages, and she hears people talking about interacting with God. And so we have these discussions going through God talking to Noah. And she wants, what she likes to have me do is whenever a person gets mentioned in the story, I have to point to them so she can know who they are. She's just like, he's talking to Noah. Where's Noah? That one's Noah. And then she asked me about the random people in the background, so I spend a lot of time making up names. But she's like, who's Noah? And then she goes, where's God? And we had to cover the fact that he's not visible on the page. Or as she puts it, he's indebitable. Um, so she believes in the indebitable God who speaks and guides this story of Scripture. But then we get to the New Testament when Jesus appears, who she also knows as God. And then this Jesus starts talking to the indebitable God. And she understands that there are two people, but there's only one God, which basically, I mean, really, she's a buyer, and she does not understand the Holy Spirit yet. But she has this idea and doesn't struggle with this concept that there's one God, Jesus is God, the individual one's God, and there are two persons who talk to each other. She can get this because it is that basic and simple and drawn out of the pages of the thing. At its root, the Trinity can kind of be summed up as a collection of seven statements. And that's all it is. Everything else kind of builds on top of that. And there's seven biblical statements. There is one God. It's the Jewish proclamation that there is one God, that the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So that's four of the statements. The Father is not Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not Jesus or the Father. If you can hold all of those ideas in your head at once, congratulations, you're thinking as a Trinitarian. It's that collection of ideas. That is the basic concept of the Trinity. There's a theologian who distinguishes between primary Trinitarianism and secondary Trinitarianism. And primary Trinitarianism is simply that. It's holding these ideas. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And they're not the same person, but there's only one God. That is the basic primary Trinitarianism. And then you get into the discussion about essences and persons and how they interrelate and I can't say the Greek word correctly and how this all interacts in places where you get into the fine things which are actually very important. But they aren't the stuff we live on a daily basis. It is this primary Trinitarianism which we all hold to. I mean, if you confess that you have been saved by the Holy, through the Holy Spirit, you've been joined with the Son who died in your behalf because he was sent by the Father, and there's only one God you're confessing as a Trinitarian. As I said, we've been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the baseline of a Trinitarian belief. But it seems incomprehensible because we get stuck on that secondary aspect. And then we can come along this idea where we want, again, the faith that can be announced by children. We want it that simple. But the truth is, the reason we start to get the faith more complex is, again, my daughter understands it because she never asks how. She never sits here and goes, okay, there's two persons who are the same God, but they're definitely distinct persons. She has yet to turn to me and go, how is this working? 
doesn't cross her mind yet. It will at some point, I imagine, but it hasn't crossed her mind yet. So she's not getting at that question. And that's usually where we start to break down as we try and figure out how on earth this can work. And that's where most of the analogies come from. Um, I saw somebody say, like, if you have a good analogy of the Trinity, fantastic. Never tell it to anyone. Because basically every analogy you can come up with for how the Trinity work has some form of heresy in it. Um, they're helpful in some aspects and heretical in another. Um, it's actually, they're kind of amusing. So if you have one, send it to me. It's fun to figure out which heresy shows up in it. Um, but you might have heard, it's like the Trinity is like water and that it has three forms. It has steam, water, and ice. The problem is that's a heresy called modalism, which basically is saying that there's only one God and he's appeared to us as the Father, as the Son, and as the Holy Spirit. He appears in different modes, but it's not three persons. Or there's the, I wrote these down, the egg one, which the Trinity is like an egg. There's a shell, there's the yolk, and then there's the... Thank you, albumin. I just looked it up. I don't know how to pronounce that one. So the white portion, that's not the yolk. The problem is that is basically tritheism. 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 You end up with three gods there because they aren't one shared essence. There's three very different things there. Or you have the, um, that it's like the sun. Have you heard this one? The Trinity is like the sun, the light that comes from the sun and the heat that comes from the sun. The problem is that's Arianism, which would state that Jesus was a cre- and the Holy Spirit are created beings, the first and greatest of God's created beings, not God itself, because the light and the heat are not the sun. They're something that's created by the sun. So you can see every one of these breaks down. Apparently there's a, there's a fidget spinner one as well, which I haven't heard, but I'm sure there's a heresy related to that as well. <laughs> but the basic issue we have here with all of these ideas and what these analogies are trying to do is they're trying to take something, a being that exists outside of space, time, and matter and bring it down into our terms. And that is where everything comes to a halt. We have an idea that pre-exists that we bring to God of what God is. And this is usually something that is a very elevated version of a person. It's like, I mean, we usually shoot a little past Zeus, but it's, that, it's on that same trajectory where we end up with this idea of what God is, and then we try and understand the Trinity, which basically is like trying to shove three of those into one, and we end up with like a suitcase with like an odd body part hanging out in a weird direction. Um, it doesn't work because we're trying, again, to fit these things together from our, our general understanding as part of the creation, as opposed to taking that the Trinity actually is basic to the idea of what God actually is. And it's something that exists outside of the way we can even use words. It's, a, it's not something that one plus one plus one equals one, because it also does equal three, and it does it at the exact same time. That's when it just starts to grind down but so does trying to imagine what infinity is. You can imagine in statements, but if you actually try and picture all of infinity, your mind breaks eventually. What you're really picturing is something really big. You have not yet pictured infinity because we can't. We have limited creaturely minds, whereas God is something of an entirely different type than we are. He is not the biggest thing in creation. He's not the biggest 
who creates the most space, who is in the most time. He is the one who, for who those words break down from our regular use. He is the only being who was not created, and he exists eternally in three people. This means that in some ways the Trinity is a wonderful tonic against idolatry because it depicts a God that we can't depict. It states something about God that we cannot break down into an image or hold because we can't even fully hold it in our minds at the same time. We simply confess the facts of it. We confess that Jesus is God. We confess that the Holy Spirit is God. We confess that the Father is God, that none of them are the same person, but there's only one God. And then we kind of just smile. And the funny thing is, we often get hit from both sides. In our minds, we sit and we wonder, are we simply creating a God in our own image? Have we simply made a God that fits our desires and gets what we want? And then we discover that actually God goes so far beyond our ability to understand, we get frustrated. So really, you can go either way. Either we are making a God or we can actually, that is in our image, or we can actually simply sit with the fact that God might, in his essence, be something that goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. So while the Trinity is simple, it's simple but also incomprehensible. We can understand the statements we know, but we cannot comprehend it and how it works and the essence of it. We simply have to wait for the aspects of it that God reveals to us and embrace those. So to restate the first two points, it's central to our faith, and it's simple but, in, but incomprehensible. And again, I don't mean that it can't be understood. I simply mean that we cannot comprehend the fullness of how it all works. Um, and these are addressing, you can see how it's addressing who God is. Um, but the funny thing is, I think for as much as we struggle with the challenges of understanding the Trinity, um, one of the reasons we really struggle with how this doctrine applies and how it relates to our life is the practicality of it. We actually, there's lots of things we do not understand that we completely embrace and accept. Gravity. No idea how that works. I can explain to you the, how that it's, it is one object attracting another object. I don't know how that happens. Scientists are puzzling this one out still. Same with magnetism. These are things that go beyond simple explanations. We basically go, it's a force. But we don't struggle with believing that there is magnetism and gravity, and I don't simply think I'm not going to fall because I can't grasp how gravity works. I accept that this is how it is. And it's because we are practical people. I know the practical applications of gravity. I keep things out of my son's reach. That's a practical application of gravity. Um, but we get to the Trinity, and we're wondering how it's practical. We are a very practical people in America. Um, and I'm not knocking that. I mean, people pay me money because I'm practical and I am efficient in order systems. It's my job in a lot of ways. Um, but it is something that can hide these things from us. And it sometimes seems that American Christians are actually the most practical people in America. Um, it's like we take 
scripture and we need to break it down into devotions with a applicable message at the end of each page or we're not quite sure what to do with it. Or, and it's probably why our art sucks as Christians. I mean, honestly, we, it's like, okay, it was a great movie. Um, It really touched on the intricacies of human relationships and life in a, a world where God is hard to see. Yeah, but I mean, did anybody turn from any specific sin or give their life to Christ in the theater? If not, we kind of feel like something is a waste of time, which affects these things. So we get to the Trinity, and we're like, okay, I can accept. Maybe it's central to the faith, and maybe it is simple to understand in a way, but is it practical at all? And it's telling that over the past, like, 50, 75 years, most of the attempts to kind of revitalize the doctrine of the Trinity in the, the American and Western church have focused on its practicality. Um, and they're mostly wrong-headed is <laughs> the challenge. Um, there's a number of them, and it's not actually in what they're pushing, but in the manner they're doing it. They tend to put the cart before the horse. They tend to take something that they believe for some other reason and then kind of grab the Trinity and marshal it to support that idea. Um, And I think one, I'll give one example, and I think it's one we actually are probably somewhat familiar with, so, and embrace in some way. So I just want to make sure I step on as many toes as possible. Um, You've heard the idea that we are to be like Jesus, that we are like God, and he is a community of love, and therefore we should be a community of love. It usually takes the path that either we're made in the image of God, who is a community of love, so we should be a community of love, or we're being made into the image of Christ, who's part of the Trinity and loves the Father and the Spirit and their little thing. And therefore, we are to do that and be a community of love, which is a fantastic sentiment. But the problem is Jesus never pushes that idea once. He... And it's not because he gets close. It's not like he didn't have a chance to comment on this. This is not like Jesus didn't push questions about the internet because it didn't come up. He is oftentimes very close and in a position where he could say that exact thing. You guys should love like we love in the Trinity. He, um, I mean, in the final speech he gives in John, which Heidi read portions of, multiple times... He he talks about the unity he has with the Father, the love he has with the Father. And multiple times, he says, you guys need to love one another. That's where you you get the passage, that this is how they will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. He's talking about these two things at the exact same time, and he never tries to make a connection. And in that, he is very, very smart. Because we are a, and largely because we are a wicked and self-justifying people. Stay with me on this for a second because I feel like I've gone off in a corner. Because that seems counterintuitive. But, I mean, think about this. There's a story in Luke's gospel, which is where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. A scribe, one of the lawyers of the Jewish religion, asks Jesus, how do we inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he does asks him a question in response, which is, what does the law say? And he says, he sums it up. He goes, he gives the two great commandments, that we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus goes, you've answered well. 
And the scribe realizes he's screwed. Because he's now put out what there is, what's required to um, inherit eternal life. And he recognizes the second one is to love his neighbor as himself. And he knows exactly how far he, short he falls with that. So he says in chapter 10, right after he's gotten the answer, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live, the scribe says. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is what we try to do. There's a, um, we like our moral axioms to encourage as little behavioral change as possible. So we try and limit them down as much as we can. So what he's trying to do, he's like, okay, Jesus has said, I need to love my neighbor as myself. So the only way I'm going to get this out of this is if I manage to shrink that group of who my neighbor is. So he asks Jesus, and Jesus tells the story where a, it's the story of the Good Samaritan, where a Jewish man is basically accosted by robbers, left for dead on the side of the road, and then two good Jewish men pass by on the other side, not helping him. And then a Samaritan, who's from the ethnic group that the Jews despised, takes him, puts him upon his donkey, takes him to an inn, and pays for him to recover. He takes care of him at his own cost. And Jesus asks them, who was the neighbor in the story? And he says, it's the one who had mercy. Jesus' point is, your neighbor is the person in front of you to whom you can have mercy. It's everyone. Because we, and he says, he, but he has to say that because we want to define things down. So you can imagine how poorly it would have gone if Jesus had said, the love you need to have for one another is like the love of the Trinity. Because I can basically say, okay, so I need to love everyone who is of the same essence of me and of the same majesty and glory and with whom I share the same will, done and done. And I'll even go a step further, and I will love the people who are a lot like me. I'll love the people who are of my same class, who think the way I think, who are from the same ethnic background. I will get the group that I can love. I'll go beyond the love of the Trinity and love a slightly larger group. But the church is meant to be a people that crosses boundaries. We are to be a body of the Jew and the Gentile, of every ethnic group joined to a single body. The church is a place where the slave and the master come together and recognize they actually are brothers who have one master. It's where the rich and the poor realize they are both dependent on the provision of someone else. And it's where male and female come together and recognize that there is not one sex that's better than the other but they share a common calling. So we need to be pointed to a love that is not the love of a community of the same essence and the same majesty and the same glory. We need to be pointed to something where someone's loving someone very different from them. We need to see a love that can overcome the history of human strife. A love that looks at people who have despised it, who have looked down on the gifts, where there's been constant slight and still says, I will love you. And that's exactly what we get. Now turn with me to John 15, where Jesus talks about this at length. 
starting in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, which he's tied to love already. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my, the, my great commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The reference point Jesus makes is not to point back to the love he had with the Father, which he just mentioned. It's to point to how he loved them. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This message was not lost on uh, the, the guy who wrote this, John. He writes another letter um, to the churches, which we call First John. And it, this is where he goes on to talk about how God is love, how God, love comes from God. So again, he's in high theology of God and love. But when he needs to encourage the people to love one another, he picked up what Jesus did, and he restates it. In the third chapter, verse 16 of 1 John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the continual reference of the New Testament. It is to point to the love Jesus had for us as the example of how we are to love. But we only understand the weight of that statement through the Trinity. Because we can take Jesus as being a guru or the greatest guy who's ever lived, um, a good teacher. We can even take him as being a fantastic angel or the highest of God's creation. And we still miss the depths of what this is saying. Because we understand the Trinity, because we know who God is, because we know who the Jesus was who died and was resurrected on our behalf, because we know that that is God, we know that when he says, love as I loved you, he's pointing to how God loves us. He's not talking about how a simple man loved us. He reveals the Father. As the section Heidi read, whoever has seen him has seen the Father. So when we see his love, we see the Father's love. And by extension, we know we see the Holy Spirit's love. We see God's love for us. This is the practical import of the Trinity. And it's the basic practical import upon which all the other ones based, are based upon. It allows us to understand what the Scripture is talking about. It tells us that when we read in the opening chapters of Genesis about this God who is speaking the world into being, who created the heavens and earth, 
we're talking about Jesus. And it means that as we read these books, that as we come to passages that are complex or challenging, that we realize we cannot play off the Father who has a will revealed in these things, the words of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit who inspired and illumines the scriptures because we're talking about the same God. It means that the spirit that we know that is given to dwell within us is not some junior member of the divinity. He isn't like the leftover God. He isn't something that should ever be referred to as it. He's not a force that God sends or something that just does the work of the real God. It is the majestic God dwelling within us, which is ridiculous and mind-boggling. And what it means here It should keep us from any mindset that wants to play off the Old Testament God as the wrathful, angry father who, like Jesus, was, I don't know, upstairs listening to music through the Old Old Testament and come downstairs and realize God was really angry and needed at that point interject himself so we got the New Testament. Um, and that he stands as the one who loves us to defend us from a father who's just angry. That is a bad picture of what's happening at the cross. It's a bad picture of what happens in the ministry of Jesus. There's something theologians talk about, it's the covenant of redemption, talking about how before all this, that it was the counsel of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit because of their shared love for us to put the whole plan into action. Yes, Jesus is the one who came, but the Father sent him. Yes, we see how Jesus loves us, but it's because God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Because the Father loved this world, he sent Jesus. And that word, just clear, I wasn't expecting to go this direction, but just to clear something up on that phrase, the most popular Bible verse ever and usually misunderstood slightly, the so in that passage is not like he loves me so, 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 so much that he sent this. It's the so of in this manner. That's what that Greek word, you can translate so, we use so that way, but we misread it. It's basically that the father loves this world and he shows it in this manner. He sends his son. Jesus loves us and he shows it in this manner. He dies upon the cross for us. The Holy Spirit loves us, and he shows it in this manner. He brings that death, and it applies it to us, and brings us into union with the, the Godhead. In the Trinity, we have three equal persons forming one God who have one opinion of us. And that's important for this series. We are going to spend the next section of weeks looking at Jesus, which means we're looking at the Father and we're looking at the Holy Spirit. And we need to hold that in mind as we move through this series. We will have fallen short of what we can learn in this series if we just learn about Jesus and don't recognize that we are talking about the entire entirety of God which is a weird way of stating that. 
be fun to go back through this and see how many heresies I actually committed in this sermon. I mean, when we get back to that, it's this simple. When Rose is reading her Bible and she sees Jesus, whom she used to refer to as the special, I think she stopped doing that, but it was charming for a solid year. But when she sees him blessing the children, when she sees him healing the sick, when she sees him feeding the hungry, when she sees him going through the Owie story, she can see how the indebitable God feels about her and his love and his care and his concern. We are to come to him like children. We're to come to him with that simple understanding. We're to come to him and delight in the fact that Jesus is God and that he loves us. And that means all of God loves us and that all of God is committed to us. It means that God that has been sent in the Holy Spirit is where Jesus went to his death to bring us to. There is no limit that the spirit that dwells within you will not go through to bring you to completion. And that means that when we hear the charge to love, that we are to love one another like he loved us, that we are to love the people of this world like he loved us. It means that we don't get to draw lines. We don't get to look and say, this person's my neighbor and that person's not. Because God said, you are my neighbor. Because God came and died for us. Because whatever gap there is between you, if you are the greatest person who ever lived, save Jesus and we're talking about the worst person who's ever lived, it's a smaller gap between you two than between you and God. And he still came for you. This is a marvel. It's a marvel of what we believe. It's something we would not have found out had it not been revealed. No one looks at this world and says Trinity. But we have, through Scripture, through the testimony of the Spirit within us, we have a testimony to the fact that we worship a triune God. That's worth contemplating. It is a spot where I do kick against the fact that we are an overly practical people because it's something that is just simply worth meditating on. In our silence, in the moments where we break away from the bustle of this world, just thinking that, letting your mind kind of be broken upon the, um, it's like there's a wave hitting you against the rocks where eventually you just realize that God is so much bigger than we are, so different from what we are, and yet he sent his son. Actually, God came for us. We're going to come now to communion. Um, And it's interesting. Um, Communion is a bizarre thing, and it's kind of fun in a 
quirky way, to that it follows every message we have now. Because the strange thing is you can tie every message back to it. It is such a rich image of what we have. That we have a father who sent his son and a spirit who applies that work to us. That we have a father who came, who sent his son, and that son saw his body broken and his blood spilt out and a spirit that brings us into that. And here we have bread, which has been given to us. And grape juice, which has been given to us. Bread that's been broken. Juice that's been poured out. And then a spirit that takes us, takes this, and turns it into more than a symbol that actually makes it something that ministers grace to us. That we can come and experience a nearness and the sustaining portion of God who will see us through to the end.